Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clercus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds, and not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They have been around for a very long time, and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up, and accept it, or move to another planet. Because these days, in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good, very good, for business. And pandemics, as if the only pandemic being hyped is an actual thing. Folks, epidemics, and pandemics have been around for as long as mankind. The only thing hurting anyone is the pandemic of the ignorant, the gullible, and the blindly obedient. Furthermore, history tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means as greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny than by any other means. Money, profits, and propaganda. Call it psychological operations or call it psychological conditioning. You are being gaslit. So choose the red pill. Remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of Northwestern Washington State. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone, or as some call it, a non-permissive environment. Well, it is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good, some not so good. All in all though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The MENA region, or the Middle East, North Africa region. Lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the old ones and the ancient ones. Myths, legends, folklore, maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region. That's right, the Mediterranean. And you probably also know that to every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth. Whew! Well, folks, it is nice to be back. <laughs> it's been a while, huh? Probably thought there'd never be another one again. At least, not for a while. But, uh, for those of you who know and those who probably don't know, uh, it's been a while 
what, probably a month? Going on six weeks now, actually. But yeah, I got distracted, uh, did some work down in a southern state of the continental U.S. I'm back. I uh, got some projects underway and others that we're looking at and considering. Uh, but that said, it is a beautiful day. Or as I frequently refrain with some people when they call or, or I talk to them and they ask, what, how's it going? Just another beautiful day in paradise, folks. And so we are here. Uh, so in this episode, uh, more or less picking up uh, from where I left off in the previous episode. Um, so there I was, uh, found myself with a brand new company. I think I already mentioned the thing with Sock LLC. And that actually lasted longer than I think I referenced in the previous episode. Uh, but here nor there, it was a good company. I mean, most of these private security companies then and now, um, at least the, the real um, real big boy club type private security companies, or most of them are actually pretty good companies. Uh, they, they have their issues. Typically, it's at the administrative level, you know, your HR department and stuff like that. Uh, but for the most part, the closer you get to the ground, uh, the field where everything's playing out, Generally speaking, the more real and legit it becomes and the fewer issues we have and the issues that we do have are usually just TTPs and and interpersonal rivalries um, until that all gets sorted out. but so that said, uh, and, and those of you who've been there know what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, most of it's just, you know, shrug it off, let it run down your back like water on a duck, right? Um, you wake up the next day, it's a brand new day, and for the most part, usually it, it, it is. It's a new day. Everybody has a day. It just happens. So anyway, so I'm with EODT now. And I think as I've mentioned, uh, EODT originally, don't know where they're at now, uh, but originally they were explosive ordnance <coughs> disposal. Uh, they got the contracts early in the second war. They, I think they had stuff going on before then, but they were basically, you know, mine clearing, mine stuff. Um, there was contract with various DOD and other government agencies. That, but that's how they got their start. They, they then, of course, transitioned in as the war progressed and, and did security stuff like a lot of companies did. So there I am working with EODT. Um, and my first contract, I think, as I had mentioned in, in the previous episode, as well as previous episodes where I've kind of blankly referenced it. So I was down there in the southern part of Iraq, <clears throat> not the ass end of it, but close to it down there in the Nazaria, uh, area. Okay. So, um, you know, did that. I think I went through that I was there. I think we were actually there, at, uh, probably around the four month mark before we actually, um, made our way out and did that transitory stuff through Baghdad and then into Kuwait before getting over to uh, Jalalabad area in uh, Afghanistan. And that was kind of an adventure in itself, uh, almost surreal <laughs> in some respects. Uh, but it was a nice break, uh, you know, because some of us had been working our arses off uh, morning, noon, and night uh, to make sure that things got done the way they were supposed to get done. And as you might expect, we had plenty of hiccups and, and uh, interpersonal rivalries that had to be taken care of. You know, sometimes, uh, and 
I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but sometimes you need to remind the folks that are working for you that you're supervising or managing who's in charge. Remind them of what their job is and they need to take it seriously or they need to pack their shit and go home. Okay. Now, fortunately, that was not a common thing. I mean, well, it was kind of common, but it didn't happen. Well, I was going to say it didn't happen a lot, but it, <laughs> that's not quite right either. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and amazingly, uh, sometimes it was, it was with other Americans um, who, for whatever reason, either because they really didn't know what they were doing. Um, and I guess the best way to explain it is I'm sure we've all seen this. You ask somebody for a resume or their bio. And you look at it, and you recognize, and, and this term came into being somewhere in this 21st century, earlier in the war, uh, but it became really prevalent, sort of seen a lot, corporate resumes. And corporate resumes probably are a good thing uh, for the corporate world. Okay, I guess that's what they want to see. I guess that's what they want to hear and read. But as far as I'm concerned, and I know I'm not the only one, there is just way too much fluff. Okay, way too much talking. It has very little to do with the question that you're being asked. Um, and rarely, rarely are the resumes, or even the bios for that matter, less than two pages. Okay, they're frequently three to five pages, and some of them seven to nine pages, believe it or not. Um, so <laughs> at least with me, you get my bio, it's one page, that's it. Okay. Um, and same with the resume. I think there are times when it bleeds into a second page, but for the most part, I try to keep it to one page because here's my thing. If you want to know, ask the question, you'll ask what you, what I want to see when I see your resume, when I see your bio, I want the facts. I just want the facts. That's all I need. That's all I want. I don't want any fluff. I don't want any hype. I don't want any BS. I don't want any filler. No snake oil salesman wanted. Okay. So I get your resume. I get your bio. And if I like what I see, I'm going to contact you. And we'll go from there. That I learned that uh, fairly early on. I think I knew it in my first contract between 2000 and 2008. 2007, 2008. But um, I really honed it uh, with the, by looking, and I read, I mean, just a shit ton of resumes, analyzed them, critiqued them, whatever you want to say, and finally honed it to mine, to make it mine for me. But that's where I learned brevity in resumes and bios goes a long, long way. Okay, I mean, we've all heard the horror stories from recruiters and HR people where they got to read and filter through all this fluff and crap. Okay, um, and so often these people aren't even close to what they're portraying in that resume or their bio. Okay, paper can say anything. You can write anything. You can type anything. Okay, you can say anything. But when we have a serious questions and answers uh, conversation, that's when I or you or the next guy or the next person, that's when we know that you're full of crap or that, yeah, he's legit. Okay. But all I need is one page, 
two at the absolute most. And there better be a good reason why it's two full pages. So, saw a lot of that. Um, and what I didn't see, I heard it from the guys on the ground. I mean, it doesn't matter, folks. You know this. Here, there, wherever. Everybody's got a BS story. You know, the there I was story. Um, the there I was resume. It's like, calm down. Okay? We're not on the front lines. We're not offensive. Okay? We're not pirates out on the high seas. We're private security contractors. Defensive role, defensive mission. So, anyway, more or less back on track. So, there we are. We've, and I think I've already talked about it, referenced it in previous episodes in the prior episode to this one. I think I already, you know, went through that thing of going back to Baghdad. I don't remember. We were there three to five days, something like that, before we went to Kuwait um, and did all that stuff that we had to do before going over to Afghanistan. So we took that that flight over there, the commercial flight um, to Kabul International. From there, we took a puddle jumper to Jabad or Jalalabad, and that was an interesting flight. I think I've already mentioned that, and and I know there's guys out there that have had similar experiences. And the puddle jumpers, these are contracted private airlines, and <laughs> some of these guys, well, I mean, we were still, I mean, they were flying the same thing that you see a lot of the commercial airliners doing then, um, and sometimes you still see it, but not much, but where it was a full power takeoff and a rapid descent, and when I mean descent, those of you that's been in them, and the puddle, I mean, it uh, I don't know what the actual nose down angle is, but it felt like it was damn near 90 degrees. Okay, it's probably closer to somewhere between 45 and 60. And <laughs> depending on where you're situated in the plane, um, I was in the rear, uh, the back seat, pretty much had the whole thing to myself. And I had to uh, quickly grab my backpack because it, it started its forward descent toward the cabin uh, where the pilots had left the doors open. So I saw the train coming straight up at us. And I, at one point, thought, holy shit, this is out of control. They've lost control. I really thought we were going to plow into it. I quickly <laughs> I quickly made, uh, 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 quickly made reconciliations with the big man. Because I, I mean... <laughs> I mean, I really did. I thought for a moment that it was out of control and we were going to crash into the ground. But they pulled it up. Um, yeah, I'm saying the last second. It probably wasn't the last second. They probably had a they probably had a couple or a few seconds to spare. Uh, there's a margin of error, I'm sure. And these guys know what they're doing. But I mean, it was it was like whoa, the first time in a puddle jumper like that. I've been in puddle jumpers before, but that was the first time that I'd had that experience. Pulled it out, um, and it, and of course quickly we were on the ground um a two or three point landing whatever it was disembarked got all of our gear out of the out of the holds uh you know and were ferried over via vehicle to the camp that was going to be our home uh for as long as any one of us stayed there and again this was at jbad in the jalalabad area uh jbad airport i believe is what they called it jalalabad airport uh where the air force had that base uh, they had, you know, there were three, there were more, there were a number of Air Force bases in addition to all the Army and Marine Corps bases and, and whatnot. But the three big bases are Kandahar, Bagram, and Jabad. And so my first um, experience at a big Air Force base was there at Jabad. So there we were, 
uh, it was a new contract for EODT. Um, and as I recall, we actually went to another place in Kabul proper. Um, and it was, uh, I don't know, I, I want to say it was the EODT in-country headquarters. Uh, and I don't know if they kept it there the whole time, but that's actually where we went. It was a relatively short drive, 15 or 20 minutes. Maybe it was a half an hour from Kabul International as we snaked and wove our ways. And I think I've mentioned this before, going through the back roads and the alleys, and I've talked about that before. And, you know, you know, trying to do the sneaky peep. But, uh, you know, and it probably was safer than going through the main road. So I'll give them that. Uh, so we spent... Uh, roughly five days there doing all the processing stuff that we had to do before. Um, I think we convoyed on, no, that's where we took the puddle jumper to JBAD. So anyway, so when we arrived at, at Kabul International, we, we first went to EODT HQ there in Kabul proper. And then we puddle jumped over to JBAD from there. Um, so there we are, Jalalabad. And so we're there and we are treated to um, probably the nicest rough type um, <laughs> rooms I've ever uh, 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 that I've had in terms of it was you might remember I think they called them the Quonset huts okay so it's this semi-circular tube type structure you know what I'm talking about okay um, and it was you know well insulated on the outside and the inside they did that spray foam stuff but everything in there was otherwise pretty much wood two by fours and plywood and all the other stuff those were our rooms sectioned off by plywood open air so there was no ceiling now a few guys went and took sheets uh they went i, I guess they bought them there on the base at one of the stores and they would drape sheets across the the open area the open space above their room uh along the the plywood walls that, that sectioned off our rooms and they would uh, tack them down or nail them down, whatever, uh, for a variety of reasons. I, I did in my room. I did not do that. I left it open. Um, but that, that was it. I mean, the, in our doors for doors, we had slider doors. And again, they were plywood doors that ran, you know, uh, two by four type railing system, uh, above, and then just the floor on the bottom. Uh, but that was it. And as I recall, we did have locks, uh, uh, on those doors, kind of like, uh, the old, uh, hook, hook type system, uh, is what we utilized as I recollect in those. We had two entrances and two exits, one at each end. And so that was our stay. That was, those were our rooms. Nice enough beds. Uh, they were bunks. Um, I was fortunate, I wasn't the only one, but I was fortunate that, uh, I only had a roommate for a week or two. Another guy came in after that and he was in my room for a few days and then went to another room. So roughly two weeks in, I had the room to myself. So I debunked put, uh, and, uh, I think I gave one of the beds to another room, but I put anyway, so I had a single room all by myself and comparatively speaking, it was a big room one guy in there so uh pretty nice we we stored all of our equipment and all of our gear there in our rooms everybody had a different way of doing it but for the most part all of your equipment all of your gear from your rifle to your your plate carrier to everything was mounted in a manner that it 
was right there. So anytime you were called upon, needed, or had to, boom, bam, everything's on, and you're out the door, and you got everything right there. So it was a pretty sweet gig, um, but it was also kind of sometimes nerve-wracking because there was a lot of stuff that woke you up. At some point, you kind of get used to it, kind of like the subway thing where people live too close to trains and subways or airports. You kind of get used to it, and you kind of forget about it. But again, sometimes the noises are big enough and loud enough or constant enough that you do just kind of wake up. And uh, that's just the way it goes when you're in that area. Now, who we were working for, ultimately, I'm not sure. Well, I kind of do know. Um, but, of course, I, I'm not going to go right out there and say it. Uh, but we were assigned to a JTF. That, I can say, and I, that's, but that's about as far as I can go. Another, so, JTF, for those of you who don't know, it's a joint task force. Okay. So, our primary mission was to keep that place nailed down you know secure um, from unauthorized ingress egress and, and the rest of it okay uh, but that so those are the people that we were working with or around um, doing security for <coughs> there on on that base um, and most of the big air bases like that have a number of separate compounds if you will um, that that house special certain types of entities um so you name it they were probably there uh maybe only one or two all the way up to a full-blown force whatever they had going on there and of course the terms of like opsec and persec so operational security personal security those things were key um, opsec which one was more important than the other probably opsec but they were both very important and i think as i've mentioned before uh part of that opsec uh, entailed them taking our phones from us. Uh, and I want to say it was probably two weeks, roughly, before we got them back. How and why we actually got them back, you know, I've heard stories. But, you know, probably at some point, they, they probably went through all of our phones and checked them all and said, okay, yeah, they're good. They can have them back now. Um, but there were, you know, obviously they were concerned about us using our phones in a manner that probably shouldn't have been used and i think maybe only one or two guys that i'm aware of did that uh usually it was when it did happen uh believe it or not it was usually the interpreters or the translators that were there and uh they were strictly forbidden from text messaging sending or receiving and a couple times maybe more than a couple times actually we caught them doing that uh sometimes right in our presence and that was a that was a big no-no they knew better what any communication that i mean we i'm not saying that maybe some of us didn't send or receive text messages usually between us but for the most part it was on the phone but the interpreters and the translators and pretty much anybody beyond that that wasn't clear to be wherever they were there on jbad text messaging was a no-no um it all had to be voice communications, and it had to be in English so that we knew, we heard the conversation so that it was, you know, for those that are scratching their heads wondering why, we need to know, we need to hear what they're saying and by that then uh, extrapolate what's being conveyed to them. Now, I'm sure 
that with all the antenna arrays that were out there, like they were at most bases and around the bases, uh, certain entities were, were listening in anyway. So at some point, <coughs> they're going to get caught. Now, speaking of that, and operational security, and I won't go too far into this, but there was an incident that, that to this day still kind of mystifies me why this person did it. Uh, he was a, a member of the military, and I don't remember which, I want to say it was the Army maybe, but it might have been the Navy. So it's the MWR Center uh, on this particular camp that we're at. And it was a nice enough place. You could go there, and they had a TV-slash-movie viewing room that was sizable enough. I mean, you could probably get about 50 guys in there, roughly, comfortably. Um, so it was large enough with the seating for that. It had a, a section for, with computers where you could go in there, and most, most of the time it was, you know, you get to the, you sit down, and the monitor was already set up for Skype. At that time, I think that was the communications method that they had. Um, for those that wanted to, uh, you know, communicate home. And uh, so one day, um, I, as I recollect, I was, I was uh, somewhere, I was in transit from that building back to our room because uh, I had finished my session <coughs> talking with the wife back home. And at some point in there, uh, somebody, I, I don't know, somebody I knew, I heard some chatter and, and what's that about? <coughs> Well, some, somebody, I don't know, E4, E5, whatever, maybe it was an E6, whatever, but a guy that should have known better. But apparently he was saying stuff that he shouldn't have been saying in an otherwise open, unsecured environment. And so whoever these fellows were, uh, but they came and got him and escorted him out of the MWR. <laughs> And from what I heard, and I don't know this to be the case, but from what I heard, he wasn't seen again. Okay, so operational security and personal security, but particularly operational security was key, huge uh, in those environments. And for anybody that doesn't know or is wondering why still, typically, I mean, it, th there's a number of reasons, but usually it's because you've got military entities operating from those bases that are, you know, uh, so whether it was the raid on the uh, bin Laden thing in Pakistan or some other place. I mean, so those kinds of areas, you've got those types of entities working and operating from places like that. So operational security was huge. And so that was one of probably, well, probably every place you worked. But those kinds of places in particular, operational security was huge. And if you, <laughs> you know, they, did, they just didn't play around. Okay. So if you said or did something that threw up a red flag, you could almost guarantee that if you weren't going home, you were at least being transferred somewhere else. So a typical day, if you're asking or wondering, a typical day there was probably not much different than most bases or camps where you're doing that kind of security um, so we had the perimeter security that entailed everything from roving foot patrols uh, to the towers um, on the perimeter as well as there was a couple towers inside maybe a few towers inside um, and then as well as there were two uh, access points for foot and vehicle traffic um, and one of them, I think, was 
basically more or less permanently um, closed down through a series of Haskell barriers. Um, and the other one was was the one that that uh, probably 98 or 99 percent of the traffic came through. And so Haskell barrier, for those of you that don't remember, uh, it is a um, an acronym. And I don't remember what uh, what that acronym is, but you can look it up. But basically, it, it, imagine a great big, huge uh, burlap sack filled with sand and then reinforced with, with wire. And so everything from preventing or mitigating uh, vehicles, say like V-bids, to rocket attacks and, and other things, uh, they would absorb um, an awful lot of this. So worst case scenario, they might be quote unquote destroyed and have to be replaced. But for the most part, nothing else happened. Uh, you might still feel the concussion from it. Uh, you know, not the direct, not directly. It'd be an indirect feeling, mostly, you know, through the ground vibrations. But uh, so, so, you know, we, then we'd have guys, we'd take our turns manning that ECP, if you will, where we had a, um, uh, a small squarish type uh, manhouse where the guards would, would, you know, go inside and because we would keep track of stuff in there and then go outside and do what needed to be do for, for personnel and vehicles that, that came and went uh, through there. Um, and then the rest of it was, uh, <coughs> you know, going to the DFAC, pretty nice DFAC actually. Uh, it was 24 seven. So you could go now meals weren't served 24 seven. They had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then, uh, everything else was out there kind of like, uh, say like a seven 11, um, or circle K where you go in and you could get everything but meals. 24 7 but you had access to it which was nice so if you needed coffee or or milk or soda or whatever water whatever you needed it was there uh, so it was so daily thing uh whether you work night shift or day shift you know just be getting up putting on your stuff and going out there and and doing your post whatever it was and we were and well the contract was probably i think it was about a year and a half before they lost it uh to one of the uh one of the other companies, and I was there, I think, nine or ten months, uh, pretty close to ten months. Um, it, it, yeah, about ten months. Anyway, somewhere between ten months and a year, but I'm going to say closer to ten months. Uh, but stuff had been building up, and uh, one, one supervisor in particular, and <laughs> I think as I've mentioned before, I had a buddy back then who I still stay in touch with uh, periodically, but uh, he called him Super Soldier. Uh, because this guy claimed to be an ex-sniper, ex-SF, ex-Marine Recon, ex, and it's like, holy crap. So this guy, I mean, in one breath, would just go down the list of calling him Force Recon, Special Forces, Navy SEAL, sniper thing. He just, <laughs> the way he said it, it just, it was so funny. But uh, anyway, the, it turns out the guy, guy wasn't any of it. Uh, but, uh, and I think as I've mentioned before, uh, one dude that looked into it said, yeah, the only thing, uh, special forces or anything about him is the sniper in his, in his email <laughs> address. So, uh, yeah, so guys like that still slipped through the cracks and, uh, you know, I mean, there was a short time occasionally where I might kind of feel bad for the guy because, you know, everybody knew, everybody knew, but him. And why the boss there at the camp on our side, why he kept him around and believed this stuff and did do something to out the guy and get rid of him and replace him. 
I mean, I have no idea. Uh, but there was talk at the time for a time. There was a few number of times where there was talk about, you know, maybe me taking over one of the supervisory positions, maybe even uh, taking over his. And, you know, at the time, I really didn't want to. I was one of the guys. I just wanted to be one of the guys. And uh, for the most part, that's all I ever wanted to be, just be one of the guys down there on the ground doing the same thing, sweating it out with everybody else. Um, so, so, I mean, but daily life that, I mean, it, you know, um, <sighs> we really didn't. There might have been a few guys that would occasionally communicate back home, uh, even during their shift. Um, but for the most, <clears throat> you know, and, and I'm not going to say that I didn't once or twice uh, do that. But for the most part, I kept it to my off-duty times uh, just because there was enough going on. And, and at night, you know, it quiets down. There's not as much traffic. Uh, but stuff still happens, and it certainly can happen. And uh, we had stuff happen, you know, during the light of day. We had stuff happening at night. Uh, but oddly enough, uh, a lot of it, was somewhere between the sunrise and sunset periods. Now, <laughs> why that was, I don't know. But sometime in, in, in between sunrise and sunset is when when it usually happened. <laughs> Someone's caught, you know, our wake up and and our and our sleep alarms. <laughs> you know, there were other things that guys would you know call them. And of course, there were you know ample ample um, um, occurrences there, and. Uh, so I think some of them I, I've mentioned and talked about in previous episodes. And, uh, you know, I'll bring them up and talk about them some more um, as best as I recollect them, um, especially those that probably I, I be, I'm okay talking about. Uh, but briefly, <laughs> before I sign off on this episode, uh, one that, that comes to mind uh, frequently is uh, an episode on one of the uh, exterior uh, perimeter towers there was along i believe we called it highway one at the time and from that corner of that camp to the other corner um heading in the direction toward jbad proper on highway one so the cardinal direction i think would be north or northerly anyway so there was a and it, it, it was always it always baffled me and kind of ruffled my feathers because we talked about it or at least tried to talk about it a number of times just trying to cover down and secure that area more more than it was because pretty much from the highway all the way into the inner perimeter walls i mean we had a series of a series of uh, security rings okay so so rings of security so it's not like they weren't secure not like we didn't have it but there were a, a, an awful lot of open area where a trespasser, an interloper, uh, uh, a, a terrorist, whatever you want to call it, could get through right up to the inner wall there. Uh, and now at that point, I mean, they, they've got we've got fields of fire, um, good fields of fire, actually, from the machine guns that were in some of these towers at that inner wall area. So if they made it that far, they were they were going to walk into a world of hurt, along with everything else that we had there. But it still was kind of unnerving because a lot of that was just, especially with the tall grass and everything else. So and there was only two towers there along that that road on that part of the perimeter, one at the north, one at the south end, and everything else was just a, a big wide open area. 
we didn't have lights shining down there so it was a big long dark area with tall grass and a ravine between that and the and the road so there were ample opportunities if and i'm not who knows maybe it happened uh <clears throat> because there were a series of of things that went off that that we thought maybe somebody had gotten past us and we didn't see them yeah we had you know the binoculars and the nvgs and and everything else going for us but still especially at night and i've talked about some of this before so before i go too far down that one uh i'll come back to that later but to the story one in particular daytime out there not an uncommon thing where vehicles would pull over to the side of the road heading in the southerly direction usually they were pulling over because they were going to pick somebody up or drop somebody off there in that vicinity because on the other side of the road was a gasoline station i think it was abandoned they didn't really have but people assembled there to get picked up by public or private uh transport uh and one thing or another and there was other stuff back there as well as well as housing and, and other stuff uh so what in particular so it turns out it was a taxi cab a private taxi cab that had pulled over and stopped and waiting for people to get in the vehicle that were just kind of ambling over taking their time doing it now we had you know the uh not the t-walls but the, the smaller ones that you frequently see in the median between lanes on a highway so they're the three four footers along with signage i mean pretty much everybody out there knew you don't park here and if you're walking just keep walking um so um i had to ready up uh on the machine gun i want to say in that tower i want to say that was the 240 bravo and in the meantime, I picked up the megahorn, and my translator had taught me how to say, uh, get back in your vehicle and keep moving or I will shoot. And I don't remember, so don't ask me how to say it, because um, the language at the time, uh, you know, the official language in Afghanistan is Farsi. But the language uh, that most of our interpreters spoke and the one I had learned uh, to say certain key things, including stuff like that, was um, that language was Pashto or Pashto, but I think Pashto. So anyway, so I learned how to. Say, so I was saying that I said it three times in fairly rapid succession. Each time I escalated the tone and the voice and everything until it was really loud. And finally, I dropped the megaphone, got on the machine gun, locked and loaded, aimed down the barrel, uh, the sights. Okay. In the meantime, the translator picked up the 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 bullhorn. And started saying the same thing rapidly. At that point, they looked to their right over their shoulders. And lo and behold, I guess they realized where it was coming from. And <laughs> like something out of a comedy, a sitcom. Uh, the, the, the taxi driver uh, wasn't completing his car. Jumped in. Tamped the accelerator. I mean, almost immediately. Doors are still wide open. <laughs> and watching these guys is like a scene out of the three stooges trying to grab whatever they could on the vehicle to get in the vehicle before it left them behind and the last dude on the right rear just barely made it in there with guys inside pulling them inside <laughs> yeah you know, it was a, it was it was a you had to be there but it, that was probably one of the most in hindsight after they took off and when we were done and the adrenaline went away uh was what was probably one of the funniest moments that i recollect so anyway um that folks 
is or puts a wrap on this episode uh, 21 of O'Connor's The Contractor's Life. And remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. So be careful what you wish for because you might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real. Oconus the Contractor's Life extends a special thank you to music composer Kava Cohen and to Colin Perry of Ninja Tracks for allowing Oconus the Contractor's Life the use of Kava's song, Heavy Clutch, from the music soundtrack to the game Forza Motorsport 7. And also, a big thank you to Andres Rodriguez, who can be found at the Fiverr website for his excellent original music scores.